Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's my pleasure to introduce this podcast where we will be discussing the paper, Randomized Trial of Constraint-Induced Movement Therapy and Bimanual Training on Activity Outcomes for Children with Congenital Hemiplegia, which is authored by Sakzuski et al. and is due to be published in the April issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Leanne Sakzuski, who is a postdoctoral research fellow, and Rosalind Boyd, who is the scientific director of the Queensland Cerebral Palsy and Rehabilitation Research Centre at the University of Queensland, Australia, who are two of the authors, and by Andy Gordon, who is the Professor of Movement Science at Teachers College, Columbia University in the USA. Professor Gordon has also written a commentary on the paper. Please can we start with you, Leanne, just to briefly summarise the background and the paper's findings. This is the largest randomised trial thus far comparing equal amounts of constraint-induced movement therapy and biomanual training for children with unilateral cerebral palsy using a day camp group-based intervention. To put this paper in context, we looked at outcomes across all domains of the ICS and this paper is focused on the activity outcomes of the study. We used a strong study design, a matched pairs methodology. We matched for age, gender, side of hemiplegia and upper limb function and this was done to minimise baseline differences between groups which we felt has been problematic in previous upper limb rehab trials for children with cerebral palsy. Both interventions were delivered for 60 hours over 10 days in a two week period and used a motivating circus theme to optimise children's motivation and engagement in therapy. The activity outcomes in this paper address both unimanual capacity, so we use the Melbourne assessment of unimanual upper limb function and the Jepson Taylor test of hand function. And we also looked at bimanual performance using the assisting hand assessment. So the outcomes presented in this paper are looking up to six months post intervention. And really by six months post intervention the results reflect the mode of training. So by six months the constraint group had significantly greater change in the quality of movement of the impaired upper limb compared to the bimanual group. And when we look at each group individually, the constraint group made immediate gains on the Melbourne assessment, the assisting hand assessment and the Jepson-Taylor test of hand function. And they retained gains in the unimanual capacity measures at six months, but bimanual performance on the assisting hand assessment declined from three to 26 weeks. For the bimanual group, there were no immediate gains on any of the unimanual capacity measures but significant change on the assisting hand assessment and by six months these gains on the assisting hand assessment were maintained and they were also significantly different from baseline on the Jepson. We also wanted to determine whether an activity-based intervention would impact occupational performance and participation. The results of that aspect of the study are reported in the April issue of Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We used the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure and found that both groups had equivalent gains on the COPM. We also found that many of the goals identified by children and their families aligned well with the assessment of life habits personal care domain, which also demonstrated significant gains for both groups post-intervention. And finally, we wanted to look in the longer term at retention of gains to 12 months. And this is a further paper that's in press with neuro um, rehabilitation and neural repair. And by 12 months, there is equivalent retention of gains on all the activity and participation measures for both training groups. Rosalind, do you want to add anything? 
The result, as Leanne said, we looked at the outcomes across the ICF and we used this is part of a larger program and really we started with looking at the evidence in the meta-analysis that Leanne did in paediatrics and really wanted to try and equalise things in the study design and equalise the dosage and the intensity of training for both groups in this model. It's a single blind study so the primary measures are blinded to group allocation and the other additional information that's probably quite relevant and has not yet been published but is the neuroscience findings and that was performed using transcranial magnetic stimulation and functional MRI and after unmasking the group, the blinded assessor had indicated that there was a higher use-dependent neuroplasticity with the constraint group, which was evident immediately post-treatment and retrained at six months. And this was not evident in the bimanual group. So I think these findings altogether kind of provide some interesting information, and the functional MRI data actually reflected that as well. So it seems that in a nutshell, the constraint turns the brain on and encourages the child to use the hand and improves the unimanual capacity. But the bimanual training has a later effect, which is also retained in improving bimanual coordination. So I think the essence is of it potentially on what you might want for the child that you wish to treat. But constraint probably is fairly important if you want to improve the amount of use. But whether then that's translated into improved bimanual coordination and, and in everyday life is an important component. So that comes down to the type of training that adopted with the restraint or the translation with bimanual goals. Andy, would you like to come in now? Constraint-induced therapy has now been around in the adult stroke population for almost 20 years. And in the pediatric population, specifically cerebral palsy, it's been around for about 10 years. Although it's I think, as pointed out in a very nice paper from Raza's group, that there are not a lot of efficacy-based intervention programs to date that have demonstrated clear efficacy. Constraint therapy is definitely one of the most promising. One of the important caveats, as pointed out in this paper, is that constraint therapy has not ever been rigorously tested against a control group up until this point, whereby the control is receiving equal dosage of an intense intervention. And effectively, What's been shown to date is that a lot of something, constraint therapy, is better than little or nothing of something else. So what's really nice about this is that there are two groups, each of which receives uh, equally intense intervention, and one of them effectively has a restraint and focuses on unimanual practice, whereby the other doesn't have a restraint and is focusing on use of both hands together. This represents the largest trial of constraint therapy in cerebral palsy to date, to my knowledge and probably among the largest trials in upper extremity rehabilitation in population as well. And there's a suggestion that, in fact, intensity, to some extent, may well be the key ingredient. Overall, the general effectiveness of both approaches is something that I think says a lot about the importance of intensity in rehabilitation and that perhaps during usual and customary care schedules are probably not intensive enough to achieve significant changes in upper extremity function. The study was carefully, uh, careful stratified randomization of groups and, as Ross pointed out, used carefully thought out and well-validated outcome measures. I think it's one of the most rigorous trials conducted in upper extremity rehabilitation in CP to date. So I think this is a 
significant advance that is going to be replicated in some of the other papers that Roz has referred to, as well as a forthcoming paper in neural rehabilitation and neural repair forthcoming by our group and I believe by some other groups that are beginning to look at the same issue. I think that one of the important issues that we perhaps could discuss is the specificity of training that Roz pointed out and the extent to which unimanual practice might result in increased use of the affected upper extremity, whereas bimanual training might, in fact, result in more functional outcomes for everyday activities. I think it's an interesting comment, and I think that also you gain what you train. Anki Larson always says that, and it is about the specificity of the practice. I guess it leads us to our next question as to whether combining the treatments may be useful in that if you started with them from constraint, you could turn the brain on, get them actively using their hand, and then continue that with some bimanual training to see if that would translate to bimanual coordination. And that's what Pauline Arts has done in her paper recently published in Neurorehabilitation Neural Repair. And I guess that we feel that that would be the next model we would consider. Yeah, I think that Pauline Arts's trial was also a, a very nice contribution. The only issue is, in theory, that makes sense, but it's not known necessarily whether the combined model is better than either the individual constraint therapy or the individual bimanual training. And I guess one of the issues that maybe we should think about is, does it all have to be done at one time? You know, the hand function is developing and, and being treated over a 12, 15, 18 years of development, and I think sometimes people look to these interventions as one-time miracles or opportunities, and you have to worry about the most intensive way or the, the perfect ingredients or, or what have you. And the reality is that, barring the feasibility issues, these types of interventions, in fact, can be potentially delivered multiple times over the course of development, perhaps focusing as decided by the therapist on the specific components that need to be addressed at a given time. So if the child is, is failing to use the upper extremity, maybe the constraint therapy at that time might be appropriate. And if they have relatively good dexterity but are not reaching their potential and using it bimanually, then maybe bimanual training might be better. There remains to be seen whether the combined model versus distributing it over time is, is really what we should be doing. That's a really good point, Andy, and I think, yes, there's still lots of questions for us to answer. Leanne, did you want to talk a little bit about the best responders data that we've looked at in, in relation to the outcomes? We grouped both the constraint group and the bimanual group together to try and determine predictors of uh, a best response. And how we define best response, we looked at the Melbourne assessment. We did some work on establishing our intra-rater reliability. We had one rater, blinded rater, scoring all of those assessments. And then we looked at what the smallest detectable difference would be for that particular measure, which was for our 7.4%. And really only a very small number of children achieved a best response on the Melbourne assessment. And I think there's probably a whole discussion around that in itself, why that might be the case. But what we did find as a predictor of a best response on unimanual capacity on the Melbourne was that um, children with poorer baseline hand function tended to do better. And I think this has been suggested in Eliasson's adaptive model paper as well, that children with poorer hand function might actually achieve a greater response. We also looked at a best response on the assisting hand assessment, so who achieved good bimanual outcomes. And 
finding predictors for that was far more difficult. Certainly age wasn't a factor. Baseline level of impairment wasn't a factor. And the only thing that really came through was looking at best responders on the assisting hand assessment at six months. And really the one predictor for those achieving a best response at six months was a greater change on the Jebson which was interesting because we can tie that back to our paper previously published in Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology on the relationship between unimanual capacity and biomanual performance. And there was certainly a strong relationship between the two measures, but we didn't know the direction of that relationship. So perhaps the results in our best responses paper might start to point to the direction of that relationship. I think our sample was probably only just big enough to do some of our secondary analysis and that paper is going to be in archives next month too and we're now looking to invite the authors to be involved in a large meta-regression so that we can look at everybody's data and see how we could best look at the responses to the different treatments and I think that's a really important point you bring up Andy is to understand which might be the better children to receive the different therapies so that would help us because the laterality of appears to almost have an effect and obviously the site of a brain lesion could impair their coordination to a greater extent and the type of brain lesion but also we did find that the children with the poorest baseline of function had the greatest effect with the constraint so I guess it follows with the greatest amount of neuroplasticity turning the brain on and turning on their union magnetic capacity. Those are excellent points and I think one of the keys that we really need to get at is who's going to benefit from these types of treatments the most and you know who should it be used for? Um, is there a cutoff where we shouldn't be doing it all? You know, is there a certain minimal level of, of hand function or is there a point where they're just too mild to really benefit from this? And really very little work has addressed this. I think pretty much all the studies have focused on max type 1 and 2 with I would say the more moderate, mild moderate levels of hand function. One of the issues about predictors of change, though, predicting changes of unimanual function might be a bit easier to do because effectively the outcome is it's based upon the idea that intensive practice of that extremity is going to result in, in greater dexterity. Bimanual function and changing that is a little bit more complicated because to do so, one, you need to improve the dexterity of the affected hand. Second, you need to teach them that it can be useful, particularly as a bimanual assist. But then third, you need to convince them that it's worthwhile in doing so. They have a choice in the matter when you're letting them use both hands. And I think anybody that works with these kids gets very easily frustrated by the fact that they are very quick to compensate by doing tasks unimanually that many of us would have a hard time doing so. So I think that that choice is an issue that we don't quite understand why they do choose to use their less affected upper extremity when we would think that bimanual would be a better way to go. I'm Christine Eliasson and her group, including myself, have recently conducted a study suggesting that the use of the more affected extremity actually may interfere with the performance of the less affected extremity, um, independent of mirror movements. And that might suggest that when they bring the two hands together, there's a disruption that makes it more difficult to perform the task. We also know that in many cases they have sensory disturbances and when you ask a child why don't they use their hand, sometimes they'll even tell you that it just doesn't feel right. I think it's a much more complicated thing to figure out who's going to benefit from the bimanual or at least have an outcome that is um, you see improvements in bimanual coordination. 
Yes, no, I think they're very good points, Andy, and I think if we can do a larger meta-regression and understand the nature of the brain lesion, the primary lesion, and also the nature of the reorganisation, that could be helpful, but we probably need more detailed information about their organisation of both motor and sensory pathways, I think would be helpful, and we've been looking at that, and in fact showing that on diffusion tensor imaging that the unimpaired side has a maladaptive plasticity potentially, so that would fit with that concept. And I noticed a new paper by Steinbergen's group in looking at bimanual coordination and that interaction between the two hands. I guess the other point to talk about too though, Andy, and I'm very pleased in your commentary that extremely restrictive devices such as CAFs have no place in a child-friendly rehabilitation. And I think the type of restraint really needs to be discussed. We agree with you totally on that. And I guess the glove that we used, which um, Anki had shown in her model, really switches the role of the hand to be more of the dominant hand, as you say. But there is still some assist with their unaffected hand when they wear the glove so that they really sort of switch the role rather than completely restricting the use of their unimpaired hand. Um, as would be done in a cast. So I think there is a little bit of difference in some of the different models of restraint and some of the ways that it's applied. Yeah, ironically, although there are some claims that the more restrictive devices would conceivably yield better outcomes, there's been no studies, to my knowledge, that have ever compared efficacy across different types of restraints. And I'd be very surprised if that were the case. So I, I think a key issue is Safety, of course, making sure that they have protective responses if necessary. Comfort, making sure that you're not restricting them for unnecessary periods of time, uh, for example, when they're sleeping. Also, even the time at which restriction occurs, we know from the neuroplasticity work of John Martin in the cats that restriction at a very early stage of development in the kitten actually results in the failure to have the cortical spinal tract complete its terminations into the spinal cord. We don't know whether such an early critical period exists in humans, but it would make sense since the cat actually is a relatively good model of human upper extremity neurophysiologically. So, yeah, I think the type of restraint is something that does need to be addressed. One interesting point, though, is at the recent meeting of the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine, we had a discussion with about 50 clinicians in the audience about how best to adapt these types of models for clinical use. And about half of the audience were using uh, CASTs, and they had basically suggested that those of us doing research in these university settings are a bit de detached from the real world. And, and I cannot completely understand why they might think that, because they don't have the same ratio of interventionist to, to child. They don't have the luxury of six hours per day for three weeks. And, you know, when they send the kids home, the parents have obviously very busy schedules that not only do they would they need to potentially supervise a child with a cast, but they would need to, or restraint, but also take care of the rest of the family and, and so forth. So one of the issues that they claimed is that they used casts because it was easier. And there's no question that it would be easier because you don't have to worry about the child taking the, the restraint off. But I think that raises a question about a divide between the clinical and research settings as is the goal to make our job easier? Is the goal to provide intensity of intervention? What's the important thing that we need to think about in the treatment and as well as making it more feasible for everybody to do? I think it's about motivation and acceptance. There's no doubt that any sort of form of restraint is very frustrating for the child and there's, there's a lot of challenges 
and I guess that's where translating it into the theme of the camp and the circus motivating theme, we had huge uptake to want to participate. But we did a qualitative paper that our colleague Rose Gilmore published and she showed that despite the frustration, then they were very engaged. So I think putting on a cast is probably a relatively easy option, but I think people still need to remember that it's the training that goes with it that has the biggest effect. And hopefully our meta regression might tease it out between the differences between forced use type paradigms and paradigms that have a sort of equal intensity of training. I think that there's such a big difference across the world about the intensity of training. Most of our children, when we're talking about translation, they get very little regular therapy. Most of, we'd see it now that they'd have a, a sort of burst of therapy once a year and by attending a camp. They'd get very little distributed therapy except after botulinum toxin injections. Whereas in Europe, they may still get three, therapy three times a week as part of their regular program. So there's a huge diversity, but I think the motivation and engagement of the children in the model is really crucial. I agree. Back to the restraint, I think it's all about acceptability, isn't it? That we want the people we're working with to want to be engaged with us and that the intervention is acceptable to them. And putting a cast on compared to, for example, a mist, it doesn't seem as acceptable or potentially as acceptable. I think also in terms of clinical feasibility, I think as a clinician, and I was a clinician for a long time before I got into research, I think we're constrained by the environments we work in, but also we're constrained by what has always occurred in the past. And I think sometimes we need to look outside the box a little bit. And I think the program that we ran over two weeks, one week in a school holiday and one week at the end of a school term or the beginning of the next term, and using community services and community facilities and training community people to assist us, I think we showed that it is possible to run this type of program. Not easy, perhaps, but possible. But I think, again, it's thinking outside the box a little bit. I think that that's, that's true. I think that um, clinicians and researchers, for that matter, do need to think outside the box and perhaps think of better ways in which we can collaborate and potentially help fill those gaps or try to problem solve together how to make these types of intensive interventions better or more feasible in the real world. Regarding intensity, even if we were to find that one restraint were better than the other or unimanual is better for one thing than bimanual, I think that clinicians are still stuck on the idea that you have one shot at doing this. And Again, I think this is something that can be distributed throughout the long period of development, and failing to think that way has other risks. And I tell all the parents whose children participate in our program, and we've had about 125 kids to date over about uh, 12 years, I tell them all that I thank them for participating. I try to work with them to problem-solve ways in which they can continue the treatment following the camp in the home environment in a way that's feasible without a restraint, trying to engage the use of their affected upper extremity during everyday activities without necessarily telling them over and over again to use their hand. But one of the things I also tell them is when they're done with the treatment, don't rush into another treatment. Don't take their kid from one therapy to another and remove them from school and social settings just to get more treatment for some of the visual symptoms that they see, the affected upper extremity. Instead, focus on the bigger pictures about that they have a beautiful, healthy, largely well-developing child that is a social being and 
there's a risk of potentially forgetting that you have a child and letting the child be a child and develop normally from that perspective. So it's kind of a balance because I think many parents and clinicians want to give as much intensity as possible, but at the same time the child needs to function as other children do. I think that's all very good points, Andy. I think the question around the distributed model versus the intensive block model and the duration and dosage still hasn't quite been answered. But I guess, yes, I think it's totally as a normal child. Normal children would go to pony camp or tennis camp during their holidays. That's why we did the circus camp, because we wanted kids not to think about a therapy camp, but to come to a motivating camp where they kind of had an intensive burst of practice and training. I guess the reality I think we find in Australia, and I think in many places, is that the day-to-day, long, drawn-out, distributed model, I'm not sure how much the kids get enough intensity to really drive neuroplastic changes. I agree. I think some of the work by Mersnick and others is sort of demonstrating that they don't get sufficient intensity of practice to really drive any changes. So they need these bursts of intensive practice to improve their skill and then translate it into an activity that's more fun or engaging or that they want to do, whether it's a new activity. And Leanne, can you remember, you, we did look at a lot of the things that they did after the camp, didn't we? And yeah, I, and I think I'll probably just touch back on, you mentioned the word motivation. I think that's such a huge, crucial aspect of intervention that we probably don't possibly acknowledge enough in terms of its importance. One of the themes uh, in terms of the anecdotal reports that came back from parents, and this was from children in both groups and many children, was that parents reported that their children had a change in attitude and what that translated into was parents said they were more confident, they were more willing to give difficult activities a go whereas before they wouldn't have tried them and that they also were now persevering more with difficult tasks. So I think all of those sorts of things as well, those in terms of that um, mastery and autonomy, I think they're really important things that we didn't necessarily measure but certainly appeared to impact on some of that, also that translation after therapy had finished. That's, that's an interesting point. And in fact, what you're saying about things that you didn't necessarily measure we see a lot of changes that I'm not sure how we would ever measure. Um, increased verbalization, increased socialization. We see changes in self-confidence in many cases, but it's very complex, and I think they're very unique to the particular individual being trained and perhaps the bonding that occurs between the child and the interventionist and, and so forth. So based upon your findings so far, uh, Leanne and Roz, where do you think the next step has to take us? I think there's two different areas we need to look at. We are going to now look at, we've just been funded by the Australian Government to look at the combined approach and we're going to look at the effect of beginning with constraint and following this bimanual and we'll look at the outcomes across the ICF. And we'll use a similar camp model. We're also looking at more of a home-based web-delivered methodology if it could deliver the same intensity would um, enable remote and isolated children to engage in intensive practice and if it's sufficiently flexible and able to be incremented and we're working with um, the group in Denmark in that area and I think so we've got to have sort of different things that are going to be available for families who can't necessarily come to a camp or come to a large city and have all the parents can't have a week off work because that's really not going to be very feasible. 
So we're sort of really looking in those two different directions and we're certainly very interested in the relationship between brain structure and function and neuroplast potential for neuroplasticity So, because I think if we can understand the mechanisms underlying different children's responses then that will kind of point the way a little bit more clearly potentially towards some of the different treatment models. I just want to conclude that this is a really wonderful study that I think is perhaps going to open up more questions than it answers, which I think is exactly what a good scientific project is supposed to do. I think that this has potential huge impact for the way we think about uh, developing these types of intensive treatment approaches, and I look forward to hearing about some of the studies that uh, Roz and Leon, Leon just suggested. Thank you. Well, that's a very good point to finish, um, and thank you all very much. I've certainly learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to seeing the, the clinical application of this and, and all the other work you've mentioned as well. And I'm sure everyone else who's listening to this podcast will too. And just to remind listeners, the article is entitled Randomized Trial of Constraint-Induced Movement Therapy and Biomanual Training on Activity Outcomes for Children with Congenital Hemiplegia, authored by Sankjuski et al. in the April issue of the journal.